<clears throat> All right. Amen. Thank you very much. Appreciate the sharing today. Thank you again, Josh and Joy and everyone else for sharing and um, just for the opportunity to exalt the Lord in various ways. It's good to be here. Good to see you. If you would, turn to John 17. John 17. We want to continue basically talking about what do we mean when we say that we, like the early church, are to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so what I want to do today is to begin uh, directing our attention to some of the things that the apostles taught, especially around the topic of the love of God, that we might get a little better understanding of what it truly is that we are to be devoted to when we talk about being devoted to the teaching of the apostles. I think I mentioned before there's uh, a football player from a long time ago named Joe Theismann who played for the Washington Redskins, which you can't say that anymore. Um, But he uh, was going through his second divorce, I think it was, and somebody asked him why he was doing what he was doing. And he basically responded by saying, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. And obviously he was saying that in the context of, I'm leaving this woman to be with another woman because I believe God wants me to be happy and I think I'll be happier with this woman rather than the one that I'm married to. Now obviously as Christians, in light of what the Bible says, we take issue with his reasoning. But is there truth in what he's saying? when he says, God wants me to be happy. If we take issue with that, then we have to question the love of God and what it means when we say as Christians that God is love. Do we really believe that God wants people to be happy? Um, Do you believe that God wants you to be happy? We tend to have a little problem with the idea of the word happy, Um, But the Puritans use the word happy all the time. Um, And so, obviously, the happiness we're talking about isn't having money and fame and all that we want in this life, but it is a very real happiness that we're talking about. And the question is, is there a connection between the idea that if I believe God wants me to be happy, then that is important to my believing that God loves me? You ever heard someone say, I love you. I just want you to be happy. I've heard that before in my own family, growing up. Why do we tend to connect the idea of loving someone and wanting them to be happy? Because we ought to connect that. (laughs) Because that is a very important and real and appropriate connection is to believe that there's a connection between love and the desire for someone to be happy, or as the Bible talks about it, joy, which I just see joy as being happiness in God, happiness in the things of God. It's another way of talking about that very reality. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks, in light of trying to explain to us again what we mean by being devoted to the apostles' teaching, is to talk about really the heart of the gospel, which is all about the love of God. One reason for that is, it says in 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. 
God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That phrase, we have come to know and have believed the love, that's where the title comes from. Trust the love, believe the love. We have come to actually trust the love of God for us. And so the question is, a very, very important question, do I believe God loves me, and am I living my life today trusting the love of God for me and for you. We have to ask ourselves, what does it mean to trust God if it doesn't mean to trust that he loves me? Well, we might say it means trusting his power. Yeah, it certainly includes that. We could say it means trusting his promises. Yes, it certainly means that. But behind all that and fueling all that is really believing that he has a heart for our good. He has a heart to love us. He has a heart to exercise his power, to fulfill his promises that we might be truly, fully, and forever happy in him. And so all that I've been doing this year in light of all that's been going on with COVID-19 and all the talk in our country about the Great Reset and things like that, my heart in all this is to prepare us for the future. And as I've thought about it, uh, Acts 2 gives us a, a paradigm for how to be prepared for whatever is to come. And it's very much about devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, and at the heart of that is believing the love of God for us in Jesus. And so I want us to look at John 17 today to see that more clearly, hopefully, and to be encouraged by it. Um, Because basically I'm arguing that to be devoted to the apostles' teaching is ultimately to trust the love of God for us in Jesus. And these things are the things that we'll go over for the next few weeks. The love of God gives us joy in God. The love of God is the heart of the good news. The love of God moves us to trust in Christ. The love of God moves us to love like Christ. And the love of God does not always look and feel like love. And I want to pick uh, some very, very important passages on love to help us think this through Because if indeed times are going to get harder, what's going to be challenged is our trust in the love of God for us. And so I desire for all of us, myself included, to be even more grounded in the truth that God loves me fully and forever because of Jesus. And so if you you haven't already, turn to John 17 and look at verses 13 through 26. John 17 13 through 26. And this is to support the idea that the love of God gives us joy in God. And that's where we want to start. First of all, it says in verse 13, and this is what Jesus is praying for his disciples on the night that he's being betrayed, right before the cross. So that's where we are in the book of John. In verse 13, this is, already in the midst of the prayer that he's praying, he says, the Lord Jesus says, in prayer to his Father, God praying to God, so to speak, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, 
even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not act, excuse me, ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. There's some important connections that I'm hoping that we'll make in this passage. Um, The Lord Jesus talks at the very beginning of this part of his prayer in verse 13 about my joy. He's talking about joy and how he wants his joy to become our joy. And then he goes on to talk about love. And he talks about the Father's love for him. Three different times, verse 33, he says to the Father, you have loved me. And then verse 24, you loved me before the foundation of the world. And then verse 26, you loved me. The love with which you loved me may be in them. So imagine the Lord Jesus is going to the cross And what is he praying over and over about? Father, you love me. You love me. You love me. So what do you need to be thinking about when you're going to the cross? Father, you love me. You love me. You love me. Matthew Henry said, this is the prayer that Jesus prayed uh, in the world, but he continues to intercede for us praying this same prayer. That we would have the joy of knowing the Father's love, knowing that the Father loves us. No matter what cross we might have to bear, no matter what suffering might come. And so the connection is between the joy of Jesus and our joy. The love of the Father for Jesus and the love of the Father for us because we are in Jesus. Crucial for us to think this through in light of the fact that regardless of what the Lord might have planned in terms of how things are going to play out over the next few years, regardless, all of us are going to suffer in various ways. All of us are going to be disappointed. All of us are going to be challenged in different ways. And the question is, what do we need to be convinced of? 
We need to be convinced of the love of the Father for us. And so the first thing, just looking again at verse 13, and we'll just walk through this and see how much we can cover with the time that we have. But I just want to highlight some things uh, in these verses that will hopefully reinforce what the connections that I just made. But he says in verse 13 that now I come to you, he's praying to the Father, I come to you now and I, these things I speak in the world, I'm, I'm telling my disciples these things, I'm praying these things to you, Father, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. The idea of the word made full there is crammed as full as it can be. That's the picture of the word. Crammed full. Well, you can't put any more joy in there even if you tried. That's the picture of the word made full. And that's what Jesus is praying for. And I've mentioned so many times C.S. Lewis talking about the fact that we tend to be far too easily pleased as sinners. And he talks about you know being pleased with uh, and having parties on the weekends and drinking and having immoral relationships and just ambition in this world and making money and those kinds of things. And he says, you know what? None of that is going to satisfy. And don't you realize that what is offered to us through Jesus is infinite joy? And he says, we're like little kids playing with, with mud and making mud pies in the slums of a city when somebody's saying, hey, let's go to the beach. Let's go have fun. Let's have, have an experience that you have never had here in the slums of the city. You're all dirty and playing in the, the mud puddle of life. And God says, come experience what real joy really is. And in our sinfulness, we say, no, thank you. I'll stay here right here in the mud puddle. And so Jesus is praying that we would be, be delivered from the mud puddles of life, that we would be delivered from believing that what I have is all there is and what the world offers is all there is when infinite joy is offered us in Jesus. That's why there, there are those like George Mueller, who was a great pastor who ran an orphanage and he would say, you know what, uh, for the first four years of my life, I didn't spend much time in the Bible, and I didn't really see how important it was to spend time in the Word so that I could actually make my soul happy in the Lord, that I could cultivate my joy in God. And he said, you know what, I came to realize that the only way that I could actually live my life in a manner pleasing to God was if I actually made of number one importance my joy in God. But where does joy in God come from? It comes from believing the love that he has for us, connecting joy and the love of the Father. They have to be connected. So when I have my quiet time, as George Mueller would say, I'm not just reading my Bible so I can check it off and say I did it. I'm looking for the face of God. I'm looking for the smile of God. I'm looking for the love of God to me. I'm praying that the Holy Spirit would illumine the Word so that I would believe in greater, deeper ways that God really loves little old me, sinful old me. That's what I'm looking for when I get up and I read. That's what we need to be looking for. And 
George Mueller encourages us to think that way. In John 15, um, Jesus says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Someone has said about love, love ever gives, forgives, outlives, and ever stands with open hands. And while it lives, it gives, for this is love's prerogative, to give and give and give. And so what is the prerogative of the love of God? To give us joy. That's what love does. It wants to give. It wants to love. It wants the the object of our love to have happiness and joy and peace and all the good things we can give it. Isn't that what it means to be a grandparent? To pour out upon your grandkids all the good things you can give them and hopefully as our being a parent as well and upon our friends and that's what love means. It, it means I want to give what is good and the Lord Jesus connects his joy with the love of the Father. Next verse in verse 14 says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. This is why having having joy in God based on the love of God for me is so important. It's because the world hates us. Now we might wonder if that's really true or not, but it is really true. Because God says the world hates us. It doesn't hate us just because we're us. It hates us in any way, shape, or form that we identify with Jesus. They hated Jesus. They crucified Jesus. We crucified Jesus. Why? Because Jesus exposed their sin. And so whenever we identify with Jesus and whenever we uh, seek to do what is right and whenever we proclaim the gospel, we condemn the world. Not that we're trying to condemn the world in terms of our heart, but our actions and our words bring condemnation on the world. It says what you are doing is wrong. What you are thinking is wrong. How you're living is wrong. And why is that needed? Because you'll never look for a savior. You'll never do anything about your guilt if you keep denying your guilt. But that's what Christianity does when it's truly lived and when it's truly spoken. It brings condemnation on the world, just like Jesus did. He spoke the truth in love and it brought conviction and condemnation to people. And some were led to salvation through it and others crucified him because of it. And that's the way it works. I was listening to um, Ali Beth Stuckey some of you may know who she is. She does interviews and things. And she interviewed uh, Andrew Brunson, missionary to Turkey. Some of you are familiar with him. Uh, back in 2018, uh, 2016 to 2018, he was imprisoned in Turkey at the end of 25 years in Turkey as a missionary, a pastor. And it was interesting to listen to him talk about his experience in that Turkish prison prison. He said, you know, they kept me in solitary confinement, but they didn't torture me. Um, they didn't, um, you know, do things to me like they did to some of the other prisoners. He said, the, the most difficult thing for me was what was going on in my own head, what was going on in my own heart. And he said, one of the biggest 
problems that I had was that I was offended by God. He said, I questioned why this was happening to me. Essentially, he questioned whether or not God loved him and was loving him because he was in a prison and he was isolated from his family. He was isolated from other believers. He said that one of the verses that um, he used, and he talks about how it was a process for him. Like for the first year, he really struggled greatly with being in prison and, and not sensing at all the presence of God and the love of God. He said, that's what surprised me so much is I read all these testimonies how you know believers went through persecution and, and they felt the presence and love of God. He said, I didn't feel any of that. And for the first year, he says, I really struggled. But God helped me, and I realized I had to trust God in the dark. And he said one of the verses that helped me was Isaiah 50, verse 10, which says, Who among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Trust in what name? The name of a powerful God? That's part of it. The name of a wise God? That's certainly part of it. But when you're in the dark, you need a God that you know loves you, that has, your, has a heart for your good. Not just an all-powerful God is a terrifying God if he doesn't love you. An all-wise God is a terrifying God if he doesn't love you. An ever-present God is a terrifying God if he doesn't love you. But if he's ever-present, if he's all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, and he loves you, that is the greatest comfort in the world. And so to trust in the name of God is to trust in his love. And so he fought through to hang on to what he knew what was true about God when he didn't feel it. And that's so important for us, no matter what may come our way. And at the very beginning of verse 14, Jesus says, I've given them your word. He says, they're in a world in which they're going to be hated, they're going to be persecuted, they're going to suffer, but I've given them your word. What word is that? I've given them your word that you love them just like you love me. I've given them that word. That's a word that they can hold on to. Um, There was a a lady uh, named Marla Maples a long time ago. I think I've mentioned this before where um, she was raised in a Christian home, but she was involved in some things she shouldn't be involved in, and she knew that to some degree. And somebody kind of asked her about her upbringing and why she was doing what she was doing. She said, well, you know, I believe the Bible, but uh, you can't always take it literally and be happy. What does it mean in that context to take it literally? In terms of the way she was using it, means it means you can't believe what it actually says and do what it actually says and be happy. The truth is, it's just the opposite. You cannot... Be truly happy and ignore what it says. 
it really matters whether or not God has given us a word regarding his love for us. Because we're going to be in dark places and go through dark times. And what will that be? That will be a test of whether or not we believe the word that Jesus has given to us about the love of the Father to all those who trust in Jesus. That is going to be the test for all of us. Verse 15 says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Which means God isn't going to keep us from the hatred of the world. But he's going to keep us from something more serious. Matthew Henry would say that the greatest danger for Christians is living in a world that hates them and hates God. That the real test is whether or not we're going to eventually just walk away from Christ. We're just going to do what Job was tempted to do, curse God and die. We're just going to uh, go into self-preservation mode and go the way of the world because it's easier to do that. John Calvin would say, um, in short, he promises to his disciples the grace of the Father, not to relieve them from all anxiety and toil, but to furnish them with invincible strength against their enemies, and not to suffer them to be overwhelmed by the heavy burden of contests which they will have to endure. For he wishes them to fight, but does not suffer them, or will not suffer them, to be mortally wounded. So what he's saying is, the Lord Jesus prayed for us, not that we would be rescued from the hatred of the world, rescued from suffering of any kind, but that we would be given invincible strength. Not that we're going to live forever. What kind of invincible strength? That our faith would survive. That our trust in the love of God for us because of Jesus would survive the test of whatever suffering we go through and the hatred of the world. Matthew Henry said, we need God's power not only to put us into a state of grace, but to keep us in it. Verse 16 says, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. You know, there are those who've written books like um, they like Jesus, but they don't like the church, or they love Jesus, but they don't like the church. Um, whoever that day is, um, that's not true. The world does not like Jesus. The natural world, the fallen world. It's very, very clear the Lord Jesus has said, the world hates me and it will hate you. It loves a Jesus or it likes a Jesus of its own making. But when the real Jesus shows up, the real heart of the world toward Jesus shows up. The world likes Christians who aren't like Jesus or those who profess to be Christians who aren't like Jesus and who don't talk like Jesus. But when you start acting like Jesus and talking like Jesus, the real heart of the world toward Jesus shows up. And that's what Jesus is saying. So don't be surprised and that's why you need to be convinced of the love of God for you because sometimes we think it's how people treat me that determines whether or not God loves me. If I feel loved by people around me, then I feel loved by God. 
If I don't feel loved by people around me, I don't feel loved by God. He's saying, don't make that mistake. Because you may be in the midst of wolves. And you are in the midst of wolves like a sheep. And you won't feel loved many times by the people around you. But that doesn't mean your father doesn't love you. Don't confuse the love of the world, the love of people in your life with the love of the father. It is much, much greater than that. That's why um, in verse 17 he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Set them apart from the world and transform their thinking so that they actually believe in your love regardless of what the world might do. Um, again, George Mueller would say, It is absolutely needful in order that happiness in the Lord may continue that the scriptures be regularly read. These are God's appointed means for the nourishment of the inner man. Consider it and ponder over it. I heard another guy named John Lennox, Lennox, who's an apologist for the Christian faith, a great mathematician as well. He said, what would you tell your grandkids if you were to give them a, uh, a word uh, for them to hang on to after you're gone? He said, um, read your Bible and ponder it and think about it and uh, stop having five-minute quiet times. Stop reading your Bible five minutes before you go to bed and start spending time in the Bible. Start reading it and thinking about it and meditating on it until the face of God shows up. Until the love of God shows up and overwhelms you and and changes you and uh, gives you a confidence in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's love for you. We hurt ourselves if we just give a cursory reading of the Bible and we don't spend time praying that God would convince us of his love for us in Jesus and deepen that and strengthen that in every new situation that we find ourselves in. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Verse 18 says, And you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. And so uh, it's interesting. um, Someone has said that basically the Lord Jesus is praying what he's praying because he's not praying for the safety of disengagement. Which means, he says, you know what? You're in a world filled with people that actually hate me, whether they know it or not, or whether or not they say it out loud. And they hate anyone anyone who really identifies with me. And that may tempt you to want to run away from that world. That may tempt you to go hide away in a monastery somewhere. And just to live your life uh, only with other Christians. He says to his disciples and by extension to all of his people, all of his children, all of his followers... I've sent you into that very world that hates you. I send you into that very world that doesn't love me. And you'll find that out whenever you actually begin to talk about the kinds of things I talk about. And so therefore, we have to be careful of compromise because we're tempted to either be in the world and kind of compromise with the world or just withdraw from the world. 
And Jesus says, I don't want you to compromise. And I don't want you to withdraw. I want you to engage people. And it may result in suffering. And these days I pray a lot for grace to be willing to suffer for the gospel. And I think it's because I think I might actually have to suffer for the gospel. And I want to be ready and willing to do just that. In verse 19 he says, For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Now what is he talking about when he says I sanctify myself? He doesn't mean I'm trying to become more holy. What he means is I set myself apart to do the will of God who sent me into the world to live and to die. And he's on the verge of actually dying in our place. And he says, I sanctify myself that we might be sanctified. It says in 1 Peter 2, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So what does that mean? Jesus died, on the one hand, to deliver us from the penalty of sin. But he also died, on the other hand, to deliver us from the power of sin, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, so that we might believe in the love of God, no matter what the circumstances, and we would obey God and testify to Christ, even if we have to die for it. He died that we might be actually willing to die for him. That we would be willing to do the will of God no matter what the consequences, and that's why he died. And Matthew Henry could say, the real holiness of all good Christians is the fruit of Christ's death. The word of truth receives its sanctifying virtue and power from the death of Christ. Why does my reading the Bible actually result in my being empowered to live, to please God and honor Christ no matter what comes. Ultimately, it flows from the cross of Christ because the Holy Spirit takes what Christ did for us and ministers it through the truth of the Bible, of the gospel, and grants us the grace that we need. In verse 20, it says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Again, how do we know that God loves us? We have to take God at his word. We receive it by faith. And so we pray, God, grant the illumination of the Holy Spirit that I might believe the love of God that's right there on the page in front of me. He says in verse 21, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, if you're like me, my head spins when I read uh, me and you and you and me and us and them and all that sort of thing. And that's because there's a lot of mystery going on here. It's hard to know what are all the implications of this, but I think we can boil it down to what a couple of people I read uh, highlight in various ways. One is to say the unity for which Jesus prays is a unity of love. The Father and the Son are bound together in a union of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And you see that. If you read the whole book of John, you see it over and over again. 
The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. And what is happening when we trust and trust ourselves to Jesus? We are brought into that love. And we are made one with the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father. He goes on in verse 22 to say, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Okay, so what does that mean? What glory has the Father given to Jesus that he has also given to us? Well, in the context, it appears that it's the love of the Father. The glory of Jesus is that the Father loves him. And the glory that he's given to us, which is the glory of Jesus, is that now the Father loves us through Jesus and because of Jesus. And I say that because he goes on to say in verse 23, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That the glory that he's talking about here is the glory of love. The glory of my Father loves me and I pray that that glory would be known by all those who trust me. I pray that they would know that the Father loves them. When he talks about being perfected in unity, we see that idea in the Bible in various ways. In Colossians 3, it says, Beyond all these things put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity, love being the perfect bond. In 1 John, John wrote John, obviously, in 1 John, he said, But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. In uh, chapter 4, he says, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. Uh, Later on in that chapter, he says, By this, love is perfected with us. And he says later on, The one who fears is not perfected in love. And so I believe what he's talking about when he says that they they may be perfected in unity is that he's talking about being perfected in love, that what unifies us with God is knowing that he loves us and we love him. And later on in 1 John, John will say, we love, we love him and we love each other because he first loved us. It's only through knowing, believing, and experiencing the love of God for us that we love God in return and love others as well. But he says, Jesus says, God loves us just like he loves his own son. If you could think of the richest man on the planet, the most famous man on the planet, the greatest man on the planet. And he decided to adopt you and say, you know what? I'm going to love you just like I love my own son. All the resources I have that are available to my son are now available to you. The affection I have for my my, uh, natural son is going to be placed upon you, my adopted son. That would be pretty exciting on a human level to say that the richest, most powerful, most influential, um, the person who could do the most for anyone else on this planet is actually going to love me just like he loves his own son. Most of us would say, that's a pretty good deal. I'll take it. And then, if you ramp it up infinitely and say the God of the universe who is all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, all-wise, who has no limits on his love for his son, 
says, I love you and I will love you just like I love my own son. Don't doubt that in the dark. Don't doubt that when things appear very different. Verse 24 says, and I'll need to wrap up here. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Again, that's why I'm connecting the glory of Jesus with the love of the Father for Jesus. Now, it's not just the love of the Father. It's all that that means. It means it's all the, the splendor and the power that God has given to the Son because he loves the Son. And that's why it says in John 3.35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands because when God loves, he gives. And so he prays that we would see the glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world. And it was a glory of being loved by his Father and actually experiencing all that without hindrance. Which is what he laid aside when he came to earth. He laid aside the enjoyment of the Father's love in its full splendor and glory. He didn't lay aside the Father's love, but he laid aside that heavenly experience of it. And Matthew Henry could say, our, our happiness as re- the redeemed consi- consists very much in the beholding of this glory, the glory of the Father's love for his Son. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. The world knows there's a God. We're all all naturally uh, born knowing there's a God, but we don't know him as a loving Heavenly Father. That is the difference. And then finally, verse 26, And I've made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Um, C.S. Lewis one time commented on the idea that, you know, we often say, God loves me just like I am. And there's truth in that. But sometimes we think God, that means God loves me just as I am and he's going to leave me just like I am. He doesn't care whether I'm any different. And C.S. Lewis would say, to ask that God's love should be content with us as we are is to ask that God should cease to be God. He says, because he already loves us, he must labor to make us lovable. He says there are things in us that actually impede and hinder his love of us, or our experience of his love of us. He says it's like a dog that you might adopt, that you decide to uh, put your love on, and yet it's a vicious dog. It's a dog that's untrained and not housebroken and bites all your children. Are you going to love that dog by just letting him continue to bite all your children and feed him and not train him and not rescue him and your children from that? No, you can still love that dog by training that dog and putting a muzzle on that dog. Or What do you have to do to keep that dog from being vicious and hurting people all around him. He says that's what God does. He said, when, when we are, are such as he can love without impediment, we shall in fact be happy. We'll truly be happy when God does what? And this is connection with verse 26. He says that God is going to cause us to love Jesus like 
God the Father loves Jesus. That's what it means to be sanctified. That's what it means to be holy. That's what it means to be really loving, is that God is going to make you so that you love Jesus like he loves Jesus. And that's how we become one in experience with God. Don Carson said, The ultimate hope of Jesus' followers thus turns on the love of the Father for the Son. So all this means God is at work to make us believe that he loves us just like he loves his Son and to make us love his Son just like he does. Those things go together. That's how he's going to make us the lover that he has called us to be. Matthew Henry again said, It is the love of God thus shed abroad in the heart that fills it with joy. There's a song we sing, and I'll close with this. Um, Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. It goes like this. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. Giver of immortal gladness. Fill us with the light of day. Thou art giving and forgiving, ever blessing, ever blessed. Wellspring of the joy of living, ocean depth of happy rest. Thou our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. Teach us how to love each other. Lift us to the joy divine. Mortals join the happy chorus which the morning stars began. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Brother, love binds man to man. Ever singing, march we onward, victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us sunward in the triumph song of life. If you think about all that he says there, he's connecting joy with love. Even when there's doubt, even when there's darkness, he's saying that the God who loves us is the giver of immortal gladness. And the bottom line question for all of us in every situation, every moment of every day is, am I trusting the love of God for me in Jesus? Because if I'm not, I'm not going to have the joy of God that God has designed through Jesus. So we have to check our joy and then check our trust in the love of God. And we need to feed it every day through the word that Jesus has given us. That's my encouragement. Because the reality is, we live in a world that's increasingly hostile to Jesus and will become increasingly hostile to us. And we need to know that God isn't hostile to us, but that he loves us like he loves his own son. Let's pray. Father, we pray to you strengthen us through your word, that you'd help us to see the truth of it, that you'd help us see ourselves in light of it. And if we've entrusted ourselves to you, Lord Jesus, we've turned from our sin, we've trusted you as our Lord and our Savior, and we pray that you would help us to rest in the Father's love for us and to feed our souls on the Father's love for us through your word day by day and help us to fight and to have invincible strength 
faith in you and faith in the Father's love for us through all that you've done for us. Help us to celebrate that very love even as we prepare for the Lord's Supper now. Father, if there's anyone here who has not yet turned from their sin and entrusted themselves to you, Lord Jesus, as Lord and Savior, I pray that they too would hear the call to trust you and to trust the love you've shown us in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.